I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Okay, so before I begin, just I want to say thank you for the LRB for allowing us to do this. Um, it's a lovely spot. And yes, and, and, and at the end, um, do come and, and, and get signed books and buy them afterwards. Okay, so welcome to our first ever uh, evening of shortlist readings. Um, I'm very pleased all the living authors have made it along, and, uh, and we have uh, one of the living translators with us. Um, because we have six readings, I'm not going to speak for long. Um, uh, think of me more as eye candy. Um, <laughs> the, this is a, this is a, this is a wonderful, this is a wonderful shortlist. Um, and as it is, it is as varied as it's possible to be without including comics, um, uh, which is done these days, uh, and or poems. Um, and as with every year, there is a book here which isn't eligible for any other UK prize. And that's something that's really important about this prize. We, we, we have a, we have quite, you know, our eligibility includes lots of different forms of fictions and, and nationalities of writers, um, and translated fiction. Um, and as I'm the only person who's been on all three years judging panels, I can say this year has been the toughest of all. Um, these books are deeply loved. Um, before I introduce each writer, I'm, I'm, I'm going to just pick a sentence or two um, from the longer pieces I'm writing for next year's, uh, sorry, next year's, next week's winner's event. Uh, so I will be popping up in between uh, 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 readers uh, uh, as a kind of palate cleanser. Um, but we're going to start with <laughs> good crowd over here, not sure about over here. Um, <laughs> We're going to start. We're going to start with um, uh, with Will Eaves, uh, 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 who has written um, *Murmur*, which is published by CB Editions. Um, there is never a moment in *Murmur* when the writing isn't both heartbreaking and exquisite, which is an achievement in itself. But when a novel operates on so many levels—the poetic, the formal, the intellectual—it's hard to fathom how one author can be quite so gifted. Uh, maybe someone can ask Will in the Q&A section. Um, so, Will, if you would like to um, do your bit, um, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. So, no pressure. All right. 
Um, so this um, is a book. Thank you very much, Neil, and thank you very much to all the organisers of um, uh, the Republic of Consciousness um, Readings and Prize. It's a great honour to be here with everyone on the list, and all of you, too. Uh, this is a book that takes as its sort of point of embarkation um, the last few years in Alan Turing's life. Um, but uh, the narrator, if that's quite the word of the book, is an avatar of Turing, not Turing himself. And the reason for that is that I felt it's important to sort of pay one's respects to the subtlety of um, Turing's thought. I'm not a mathematician, although I've worked hard to understand some of the philosophy behind the mathematics. Um, it's bookended by extracts, fictional extracts from an imagined journal that Turing takes while he's taking the hormone that was part of his sentencing when he was arrested and convicted of gross indecency with another male, 1952. Um, and uh, I'm going to read a little bit first from one of the journal extracts. Tolstoy's accounts of Borodino and Austerlitz show us what real war is like. No one knows what the orders are or who is winning. No one has any idea what to do. Soldiers are permitted to kill each other and are maddened sooner or later by the realization that someone else, somewhere relatively comfortable, thinks this is the right thing for them to do. And we are not so far from that kind of chaos in everyday life, really. I walk down the street towards the infirmary every Wednesday, and I go in and wait and sit down, and everyone is quite polite, and I am played with by the law and turned into a sexless person. The most extraordinary thing is done behind a nice white screen. And the nurse who injects me does it with a good will, because she has been told that it is her job. She doubtless thinks of herself as a freely choosing agent. She likes to think she does her job well. But at the same time, she is just doing her job. One hears this a lot. That means she does not take ultimate responsibility for her actions, because those kinds of decisions are taken or absorbed by more powerful persons, like Tolstoy's generals, who know what they are doing. She sees no contradiction between this and her own intuitive sense of agency. She goes home to her parents' house and has her tea. They have put up some new frieze wallpaper with a ribbon of classical-looking dancing figures where a picture rail might have been. It looks pretty, and I wonder how often the family has looked at the actual figures in the frieze, copied from vases in the British Museum by some impish and bored designer. The figures are A, playing music, B, killing their enemies, and C, engaged in exotic but mechanical sexual relations. We agree not to look. It is a simple but profound contract of the collective subconscious with the truth. If you speak the truth or do something which indicates how human beings function, regardless of the law, regardless of moral superstition, then people will turn against you. And you must never underestimate how fearful and weak most people in a large body, like a government or a university or even an office, actually are. Once you have been isolated in this way, you can be dismissed. And the second short extract um, is from one of the dream sequences that make up the bulk of the book that come between the two journal extracts. And this is from a further avatar of Turing to his AI daughter. 
It is a singulare tantum, love, the room of life. But everybody's furniture is different. And none of us remembers where it came from, though we deeply held, though we deeply sense it's held in trust. Our room is everything to us, the inner and the outer world, the universe, and every possible inflection of nature, sensation, period, and thought. And yet the loss of it, to each of us in turn, will not matter that much, because strangely, it is the knowledge there are other rooms, or rather tenants of this room, the lives of others from a future quite unknown to us, continuing beyond our grasp, that gives the room its shape. It is a bounty built from scarcity. We have it once, and that limit, material mortality, gives what I do, the work I wrestle with, the friends I love, the fears I feel, meaning. The more we value what goes on in spite of our loss to ourselves, the more we seek the survival of afterlives not ours, the more life means. Now comes to mean the whole of time, the seen and the unseen. You are my afterlife, my work, and I need you to go on after me. I think your version of the room will be large, shape-shifting. I think that you will often feel you pass unnoticed as a force, that what you are is always overlooked. We will transistorize ourselves and make you stare quite hard at our reflections, hoping you will be an improvement on age, infirmity, and adult brain function. Here is a bird, there is an explosion, this packet of neurons, that path. But all apart from that will be, for us, the uninterpretable way you handle the data. Your senses won't be ours. They will be geometrical and topological and platonic. You will feel spheres and squares and numbers as ideal, real things, and it will be a mathematical sensorium crammed to the rafters with a hyperfamily. But it will still be consciousness, and what that means is there will always be the room. And you will always wonder what's outside the room, and who made it, and whether you are made by others or self-made, original or successive, one in a long series of things, patterned or randomized, and you will feel alone. You will perhaps be lonelier than us, because you will accomplish everything so fast, and time will seem pointlessly long. There is the possibility, indeed, that you'll be orphaned by your own capacities. At any rate, the greater your power, the more significant will be the undecidable question, is there a limit to my power? That question opens on a void. To answer it, you'd have to be outside the room and looking in on someone wondering your thoughts for you, whereas, of course, the limit is imposed not by an answer, but by attitude, the mood of your species. A sense of what you cannot do leads either to reckless and paranoid dismay, I can't be stopped, or productive humility, this is my stop, which is to say, a choice. The price of consciousness, of power, is choice. Thank you.
Thank you, Will. Um, our next reading um, is from Doppelganger by Dasa Dernditch, published by Istros Books, translated by Celia Hawksworth and uh, S.D. Curtis. Uh, Doppelganger contains a short story, Arthur and Isabella, and a novel, novella, Poopy, um, which we're, we're going to hear a bit from in a second. Uh, only one of the judges was familiar uh, with uh, Dernditch's work. The rest of us were were stunned by what we read. It was like discovering Kafka for the first time. Dark, playful, uncanny, absurd, funny, haunting. The first story had us reeling. Not only does it include geronto, gerontosexuality um, in all its winkliness, i.e. old people having lots of sex, before we get there, we have full-on incontinence. Um, talk about rending the, render, the rendering of the lived experience. Um, but that, that will be uh, 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 for you to read because we're going to hear from uh, uh, Celia who translated uh, uh, the novella Poopy first. Um, Celia, thank you very much. This, this may be quite hard, the piece I've chosen, because it's in two different typefaces. So one is uh, an, a continuous narrative through the whole of the Poopy story, and the other is Prince, who's, Poopy is actually called Prince. He was called Poopy as a child, and it never kind of wore off. Um, so it's his own reflections on his life, and he's reached a stage in his life where he's kind of trying to pull things together and feeling that it's not going to work. He's uh, standing on the edge of the zoo in Belgrade. Prince stands on a ridge, looking at the two rhinos down below in their enclosure. It's late autumn. The colors are autumnal, dreary. I'm watching the rhinos. They're big. Prince would like to tell someone something. There's no one. I'd like to tell someone, anyone, I'd like to tell someone. I buried mother today. Mother is called Ernestina. We called her Tina. There's no one around. Shout. Shout to the rhinos down below. They're down there in the hollow. Zoos aren't a good place for outings when it's late autumn and cold and you're burying your mother. I feel alone. He's not alone. He has a father. My father is old and sad. I'll take him on a trip. And he has a brother. My brother's no good now. I'll take my father a long way away. But no, Prince is not yet alone. Prince's dense solitude is just coming into being. Behind it, there is darkness. My solitude is budding, says Prince. I feel my solitude budding. I can see my solitude budding. That's why I take deep breaths. Prince takes deep breaths on the ridge, watching the rhinos, while his solitude swells. This is like an enormous tomb where the rhinos live. Mother doesn't have a tomb. The funeral was enough to freeze your feet. The crematorium is behind muddy fields because it's new and unfinished. But the furnaces are all right, they work. The furnaces work perfectly. The cemetery's behind the crematory. It's an old cemetery, orderly. It's the third crematorium in the city. It's a big city. The hall is like a mausoleum, a church. The ceilings are high and painted. It's cold inside. 
When the music stops playing, the coffin disappears, and the people look up at the painted ceiling because they feel uncomfortable. Down below are the ovens. Mother is nailed up. The coffin is cheap. There's music. Someone makes a speech. Mother disappears. Mother burns, but no one sees. Mother is ash. Jörn stays in the depot for five years. That comes later. Father's still alive. The depot is large, like a warehouse with white tiles for the sake of hygiene, a store of urns, a store of the dead, here within reach. That comes later. In this city, there are two rhinos. This city used to be handsome. It isn't now. It's grown old. It's let itself go. It has been let go, allowed to fall to rack and ruin. I was handsome once as well. I've let myself go. I'm ruined. Prince was handsome. He still is. He's let himself go a little. He's not yet been ruined. He will be ruined later on. He will be allowed to be ruined. He will let himself go, fall to rack and ruin. Thank you. Thank you, Celia. Okay, um, now uh, everyone's keeping very good time. Um, we have Daedalus uh, by Chris McCabe, which is published by the Henningham Family Press. Uh, I do believe that uh, we're going to have two readers uh, 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 for this. Um, but um, Daedalus is a creative response to the greatest novel in the English language. It is a momentous act of hubris. Uh, Chris McCabe, Chris McCabe has the cojones of Achilles. I, <laughs> um, I've started and not finished Ulysses many times. Reading and finishing Daedalus somehow provided the energy for me to start and finish Ulysses. I got the keys to Ulysses from Daedalus. And that is quite some gift. Chris and David. Thank you, Neil. Thank you, Sal. Hello, everyone. Um, yeah, I'm just going to um, ground the work a little bit. So it's set the day after Ulysses. Um, in terms of narrative, Stephen Dedalus wakes up with a whopper of a hangover. Um, and he's pursued by four different things. One is his hangover, which is pr pretty monumental. Um, the other, um, is somebody called Leonard, or who he thinks is called Leonard. It's Leopold Bloom. He doesn't know his name and this guy keeps turning up and, and pursuing him throughout the day. Uh, and he's followed by two ghosts, the ghost of Hamlet, uh, and the ghost of his mother. Um, and I really want to play around with this idea of the day after in terms of narrative, but also like the day after Ulysses, you know, Joyce laid the ground for, for what came after in fiction. Um, but what would he do with the internet? What would he do with social media, visual poems, that kind of thing? Um, so that was what was kind of exciting me as I wrote it, um, wondering what Joyce might do. Um, this section I'm going to read from, um, is the equivalent to Joyce's Nighttown section. Um, and it, it kind of um, extends that suspension of disbelief from that section in a different way. Um, Stephen Dedalus, um visits a therapist late in the evening 
in Dublin. Uh, the therapist drives a Lexus. I'm going to welcome uh, David up to be the therapist. Stephen sighed. Exhalation without sibilance. The therapist waited. Through a break in the curtains, a street lamp stared its oil along the side of a carriage. Hoof and half-tone, the colliding stimuli of the poet. Stephen looked again. The carriage was a waxed black Lexus. The accumulation of the therapist's many listening hours. Stephen spoke. Your car moves less quickly across time than the novelist's words. There is an art to listening too, Stephen, and my work necessitates travel. You pay for it with the wages of Dublin's parents? I pay for it with the wages I earn. I have no need of a Lexus to necessitate travel. My lexicon will take me back to Europe. What is it you're running from, Stephen? A doctor, an Englishman and a milkwoman. Must you always speak in such riddles? Synecdoches are my only clarity. You mentioned earlier, Stephen, that something happened today that you wish to discuss. A girl? Yes, I met a girl. The milk hag has transformed to a nymph. Who was she? She asked me about Yates and had stitched boards for the women of Dumima Press. She praised my work. Would you see her again? I see her now. She wears nothing but white. What else was said? Words, words, words. You talked for long? All time takes place at once. We looked, talked, married, aged and were knitted as one package back into the earth. How, Stephen, does this girl differ from those you've been visiting in Monto? There are less creases beneath her frock. Interesting that you still define her by her body, as well as seeing her as other. Perhaps you make an ideal of her. I'm through with the Platonists of this city. She was no imagined form. I saw hairs on her arm where she brushed the rails. Her elbow was marked with a large brown mole. Are you Hamlet to this Ophelia? Don't mention him. He shadows me through Dublin. I am much relieved by his disappearance to England. You believe his love for Ophelia was not true? Did he not jump into her grave? All copulation is a jump into a grave. We dust down the soil and make our excuses. By cock we are to blame. You have talked before of your search for a woman like this. The games with Mercedes as a child. The pining through Dublin streets. Is this then her? The one? I feel different today than yesterday. Yesterday I had a winning horse and told no one. Today I have won a girl and must talk to a horse. You woke this morning seeing your mother's corpse, Stephen. There's no therapist worth their salt who would not make this connection between her death and this girl in white. That is the observation of an ordered mind. You refuse to see it? What really am I able to see? My whole being is fatuous. My creator devised my first conception under the title Stephen Hero. What more apt metaphor for the burning wings of ambition? He did this perhaps from love to give you the fullest chance of becoming. He did this to polish the wing mirror of his art into a more oblique reflection of my face. In Hero, I had features. Whole pages were spent in description of my hair. I remember the line, a girl might or might not have called him handsome. 
my mouth feminine. His portrait of me was nothing but a fluffer for onanistic esthetes. I have become lost behind the language. Like a film left in the sun, I fade towards transparency. You don't feel his love, that he wanted you to be the best that you could be? He burned my first incarnation. Only half of the thousand pages survived the flames. Perhaps this was to give you the best chance to fully become yourself. His sister saved me. I owe more to her than him. He penned you. And threw me. Sometimes I feel like the vacuous container for his late-night debauchery. I refer you, Stephen, to what he said to Nora. Ah, her. He forced me to watch them have sex. The therapist picked up a book and began to read. Now, my darling Nora... I want you to read over and over all I have written to you. Some of it is ugly, obscene and bestial. Some of it is pure and holy and spiritual. All of it is of myself. Yes, himself. Where am I in it? What, Stephen, do you think you might gain from questioning your conception like this? I have two mothers. Both are dead. The first was a man called James. He liked to watch women urinate. It's interesting that you see Mr. Joyce as a mother and not a father. Bloom's feminineness flowed from the author's anime. He loved women because he was so in touch with the one inside himself. There is nothing to be scared about in being sensitive. To our feminine aspects. Tell me more. Once as a girl, a boy felt under my petticoats and recoiled from what he found there. What was there? A partic thistle. I was too confused to tell anyone. She is dead and gone, lady. She is dead and gone. At her head a grass-green turf. At her heels a stone. In the blind dark corner, The therapist blew his cockling nose into the rag of the past. He took out a paper bag from which he plucked flowers and herbs and began to throw them on the ground in front of him like a clown at a funeral. Tufts of rosemary, wax seals of pansies, sprigs of fennel, fresh daisies and violets. Between each handful of thrown leaves, he wiped his nose on a handkerchief. There, there. Once upon a time, and a very good time it was, there was a moo cow coming down along the road. And this moo cow that was coming down along the road met a nice little boy named Baby Tucku. Stephen? Yes? Could you give me a hug? Yes, but where are you? I'm here in the corner, next to the self-help books. Stephen turned, voice without matter, the ineluctable modality of the visible was a mistake. The voice alone was ineluctable. Thank you, thank you. Next one, right. Uh, This is Sweet Home by Wendy Erskine, published by Stinging Fly. Um, If everything is right and good with the world, the playing field is flat and true, and the goalpost cannot be moved, 
There is a story in Wendy Erskine's first collection that should be in every short story anthology forevermore and taught on every creative writing course across the world. Inner Keen has stayed with me as no other short story ever has. Wendy. Thank you very much. It's lovely. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. plushcare.com/weightloss. Be here this evening and I can only start by apologizing that I'm not reading in a keen. Um what what I'm reading instead is um a kind of a version of Death in Venice except it's set in East Belfast and uh, Cox Lodge, a place in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. She's reading the book section of the Sunday paper when she sees that a crime writer's appearing at a book festival in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. In smaller letters, much smaller letters underneath, are those also appearing, this person, that person, never heard of him, never heard of him, never heard of her, and Ryan Kedroff Hughes. He will be talking about his forthcoming book, Arab States, Mind and Narrative. There isn't a photo, just one of the crime guy sitting in front of a bookcase. Paula goes on the computer to order the book. While she's there, she has a quick look at flights to Newcastle, which are surprisingly reasonable. By the way, Paula says one day, when she and Jimmy are having their tea, I don't suppose you ever remember me talking about Ryan Hughes. We're going way back here. You know, university, we're going back years. No. You don't remember me mentioning him at all? No, never heard of the fella. Are you sure? You sure you can't remember him? No. Well, he's not called that anymore anyway, says Paula. He's called Ryan Kedroff Hughes. Just thought you might remember him. He's on the TV these days. Politics shows. Oh, well, now you've told me that he's on the politics shows. I know exactly who you're talking about. You do? No. (laughs) Actually, hold on, he says. That fella. I think I do know who you mean. Yeah? Yeah. 
He was always at Mick's Christmas parties. Mick was the only person from your course that was normal. Mick was dead on. The guy you're on about was always there. Always in the kitchen, crapping on about something or other. You know, turn the music down so that I can talk because people really need to hear what I have to say. I think I actually might have had a run-in with him once. Sort of Lord Snooty type. Lord Snooty type of fella. Might not be the same person, says Paula. He wasn't like that at all. Ryan Hughes was actually incredibly left-wing. Well, this guy I'm thinking of was a bit of a dick, says Jimmy. Well, the guy I'm thinking of wasn't a dick, says Paula. (laughs) Might not be the same person. Did you know him well? The person you say wasn't a dick. No. Well, then he might have been the dick that I'm talking about. He wasn't a dick, says Paula. Paula sits at the table, the brown cardboard package in front of her. Jimmy has gone out for a drink. His parting words were, he was a dick, by the way. (laughs) With a little tug, the serrated strip gives easily, and Paula puts it to her face to sniff the new glue. The smell of cleverness, hardback. Arab states, mind and narrative. The cover is a little austere, a blue which could be sea or sky. Ryan Kedroff Hughes is in a bold block typeface. On the back there's a small picture of him, high contrast, black and white. It's reasonably flattering. Chapter 1 is preceded by three or four pages of maps. A bit daunting maybe, but a book like this is obviously going to make demands on you. Demanding and rewarding. It's not really for the casual reader anyway. She turns to the acknowledgements. Yes, 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 all the usual people are there. My editor, my colleague at here, my colleague at there. Patience, forbearance, uh uh-huh, uh-huh. And then Sabina Kedrov. That must be his mother. That's okay. And then it's thanks to Fazia for the breakfasts. Fazia for the breakfasts? That seems a bit trivial. Paula thinks of a taut woman cooking a breakfast wearing only a man's white shirt. Assembling a breakfast, no splats of fat on that white shirt. Still, still, breakfast can be bought down any street. Fazia probably works somewhere he goes to, used to go to, for his breakfast. He's there with his laptop, top making a few notes, answering a few emails, Fazi is an old lady who works in a Turkish cafe somewhere. So cool of Ryan Kedroff used to acknowledge in his book an old worker who prepared his meals. Paula starts going to the cinema, mostly the one at the university. She sees a film set in Jerusalem about an orthodox butcher who falls in love with another man. It doesn't end well, and Paula finds herself crying a little. The discussion afterwards, chaired by a lecturer in international studies, is on the theme of the multiple meanings of urban citizenship and identities. The woman next to Paula has a few comments to make on secular identity. After the final round of applause, Paula asks her if she's ever been to Jerusalem. No, the woman says, not in a long time. Although she has travelled in Belfast, although she has lived in Belfast for many years now, she did travel extensively when younger. She asked Paula if she has been to Jerusalem. 
No, says Paula, but I've a friend who spent time there. I see. Yeah, you may well have heard of him, my friend, Ryan Kedroff Hughes. He's on the TV sometimes. I'm terribly sorry, but I haven't, says the woman. No, Paula says. Well, I would thoroughly recommend his book, Arab States, Mind and Narrative. I'm two-thirds of the way through it. Yes, Ryan Kedroff Hughes, says Paula. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we now have Anthony Joseph, who has written Kitsch, um, which is published by Peepile Press. Uh, maximalist, polyvocal, polyphonic, Kitsch is a bravura work. It leaves everything on the page. The writing creates a kind of saturated color, technicolor, when, let's face it, all the other books on this shortlist are different degrees of bleak. It's... <laughs> Uh, that's that's David Collard's line, I have to admit. Um, it's prose for the senses. It's prose that intoxicates, and without that, uh, and that's without talking about its cultural importance and current timeliness. Um, thank you, Anthony. Uh, thank you. Thanks. Um, when I first started writing this, um, I said, yeah, I'm writing a book about Lord Kitchener. Um, a lot of people were like, why do you want to write a book about this old English dude? What's, you know? And I had to explain, um, that no, not that Lord Kitchener, but another Lord Kitchener. And they still couldn't get it. So I had to point them to the Windrush footage. I don't know if anyone has seen that. If you Google Windrush 1948, there's footage of the ship coming into Tilbury. Uh, in June 1948, and at the end of the footage, there's a guy that is asked to sing, which is a strange thing to ask uh, an immigrant who's just coming in, would you sing for us? But anyway, he was asked to sing, and he sings a song called London is the Place for Me. And then they go, oh yeah, that that dude. So I wrote this, um, you know, first sort of biography of Kitchener, uh, in multiple voices, polyvocal, as Neil says, it's a lot of voices, but there are some third-person passages, and that's what I'm going to read. And this is called London is the Place for Me, and this is the arrival at Tilbury. Four-day dawn, the sky is ashen gray. The sea washes from the waters, and the river begins to lash at the ship's bow. Estuary. The water here is dank and slow and dour, like the scent of snakes and damp country bush. And along the Tilbury coastline, there are dark and sleeping hills. A few factory chimneys that pout, fog, blink, lights, sapling, and crab apple trees. Marshland and the fisheries. Portside warehouses and shippers' offices. The morning opening, sickly, diseased, and dull. Silt. The white foam forms a trail. The engines churn through sediments of oil and blackness. Dark figures crowd the prow of the ship, black faces peering from the top deck. Some have footholds in the riggings, while others hold their hats and jackets shut against the wind. 
silhouettes of their dark mass, and then the buzzing hum of their voices traveling across the water. The ship begins to turn slowly into dock. It asserts its drafts and trim. It rests on its keel, and then the engines die with a groan. Those on the shore cannot fathom the depth of field. Likewise, as islands are often underestimated on maps by cartographers, so too the ship's true scope overwhelms the eye. The men on the boat can see the crowd gathered on the docks to meet them, and they wave. They put fingers beneath their tongues and whistle. They have seen shipyards and ships arriving before they know what to do. Their faces are taut and starched by six weeks' sea blast. And when they come down the, gang, the gangways with their sea grips and luggage, their shoes are the only things shining in the dull light. A young man steps onto land. He feels the air with his face. He tastes it with his open mouth, the sea smell, the moisture on the tongue. One suitcase or box case or bundle tie up with twine, the soft suit, the pastel-colored seersucker shirt, the trilby, the brogues burnished from kneeling between the varnished pews on some evangelical Sunday morning in the tropics, with the breadfruit branch knocking on the roof of the sermon. But he stands there now on the wooden jetty, upright in England, the land he had imagined for so long. A photographer fixes his image, flash bites his eye. A reporter in a black wool coat, black hat, his red face round and impartial, pate microphone in hand, he pulls his bulk up the gangplank onto the deck. There are a group of men there, leaning starboard on the top deck, smoking slow cigarettes, waiting for the jetty to clear so they can come down to England in style. He who sings is the center of their circle, and the reporter wants to see who stands among them with the song. The Calypsonian emerges to face the mic and camera eye. He wears a wide-brimmed trilby, fawn brown, pinched at the crown, a polywool suit in indigo blue, with white lapels and padded shoulders, black tie, crisscross patterned with white knit and knot. The trousers are high-waisted and hold two-inch folds. They fit so loose in the thigh that the sea breeze flaps the pleats. The camera operator sets his tripod on the roof of a car on the jetty below and zooms the image of the Calypsonian down to earth from the deck. What appears to be close in his lens is actually distant, and this is why the film stock cannot capture the fine details of the Calypsonian's face. The rigid bone, the cat-eyed blink. Instead, the image he records is dark and simple. Now, may I ask your name? Lord Kitchener. Lord Kitchener, now I am told that you are really the king of Calypso singers. Is that right? Yes, that's true. Well, now, can you sing for us right now? Yes. London is the place for me. Mimics the upright wood bass. London, this lovely city. The right shoulder rises. The beat runs down. You can go to France or America. India, Asia, or Australia, but you must come back. To London City, wood bass in the throat, the rolling country Baptist diction. Well, believe me, I am speaking broad-mindedly. Tap, tap, tap of the beat against the railings and his shoulders, ducking and clenching, releasing the rhythm, the laughway, the drum. London, this the place for me. He can hardly contain the motion of his body. 
mimics the wood bass, the rattle of the cornbird's throat. Two verses is all he sings. The wind on the river blows up ghost behind these men. Look how cold tightens their smiles. And in the somber dim dawn when the Calypsonian finally climbs down the gangway with his beige canvas suitcase, he looks to the sky, always the sky, but cannot find the sun. More smoke. Smoke upon smoke upon smoke upon smoke upon smoke upon smoke. Thank you. Okay, we move to our, our last uh, reader, um, Lucia, by Alex Phoebe, published by Galley Beggar. I've written here, yeah, it's all right. <laughs> uh, Lucia may be about the nature of agency. It may require us to look hard at our rather soft notions of empathy these days. But as a novel, it is a great work of courage. Try and think of another novel that mutes and extracts the central character from the beginning and yet has us weeping for her at the end. Only art created from equal amounts of honesty and love can do this. That's all right. I'm going to clap. Clap. Thanks. <laughs> Comes to something we have to tell an audience to clap. That's what I always think. Um, so I said to Neil, I was going to read the end. And he said, don't read the end. So I can read the end. Or I can just uh, ask you for a number. There are... Let me move my glasses. I can't see close. 350, 355 pages. I was told... I'll, I'll pause myself there. I was told that asking the audience for a number was rude right? If they've paid, right? Because then it shows that I haven't prepared something for you. I prepared this. <laughs> That's my feeling, which was the point I made to the person who said it was rude. Shall I read from the beginning? Well, you've said, you can read from the request. With the what? God, I can't remember what page that is. No, you can't make a request. Yeah, I don't like that. But we <laughs> I'll read a bit from the beginning and then a bit from that if you want. Okay. So, all right, the beginning then. Okay. Uh, it's a book about Lucia Joyce, James Joyce's daughter, uh, who was done against. I think I'll leave it at that, I think. So this chapter, the beginning chapter, is written from the perspective of the funerary priest uh, from Northampton, December 1982. Not start with that. Good microphone work, by the way. It's very impressive. <laughs> I can't undo it or put it the right way. No, it's fine. Is it audible? All right, cool. See, this is the way this works. See, this is why I think the woman said I was rude. She said, you don't seem to have prepared. <laughs> uh, it's like Dardarist types up. Anyway, nothing unusual. Lena, perhaps. Lighter. Bony like a bird, swan, long neck, three on six, three and six on the box and half a crown on silk. Save on the wood, no reinforcement. Save on the wadding, no need. Can't weigh more than a child, halfway to a skeleton. Paper on balsa wood, like a plane, stretched and pinned at the wrist, 
at the shoulder, at the knees, at the hips, tent material pegged taut in taupe. Never at the neck, tight across the cheeks, but the neck wrinkled and sagging like a wattle, turkey, cock. Anything you need? No, madam, the boys and I will be fine. Tea? No, madam. And please don't offer any to the boys. It's hard enough to get them to pay attention to their work as it is. Thank you. She nods, nice enough. Hard not to see her as if she was laid out, too. Bigger, heavier, shorter, but needing a broader plank. More fluid. This one will barely stink, but her, vats, pints, liters. No tea. The measuring tape gives the final tally. The boys are out there, smoking, laughing. Say something. Bad for business, even in a place like this. Taps on the window bring dust from the frame, sash weights knocking, heavy lead. Hand blade drawn across the throat, edge against the Adam's apple, and they drop their cigarettes, grind them out. Fag papers and threads of brown tobacco, guilty looks and the drawing together of jackets, shuffling. Back turned and there will be smoke at smirking. Not her though, time for smirking long past, time for anything. The wake, then. Undress her. Preliminaries to the embalming that job, clothes, teeth, makeup, nothing flashy. The art being to replicate the seeminess of being alive, but with the gravity of the hereafter. The lack of movement, of soullessness. Finality, etc. Madam! Down the hall she comes from another room, a bundle of sheets under one arm, a breakfast tray under the other. Open casket. What? The deceased was a Catholic, you put here. Will the family be holding an open or closed casket wake? What? Puzzled, derisive, resigned. First job here, she says. It was. The last lot lost out on price. Wouldn't hire poles. Her family won't be holding a wake. Ours rarely do. Suddenly posh, in the voice at least, bearing still fishwife in the main. Cheaper, no wake. Easier, less air to the face. Quick glimpse, perhaps, kiss on the forehead, and then the grave or fire. This is from the perspective now of the desecrator of the mortuary literature. Uh, and it takes place in the garden of Name Redacted in May 1988. As if you're familiar with the Joyce estate, might understand why the name has been redacted at this point. The box was more a chest or one of those trunks that first-class passengers' lackeys loaded aboard the Titanic, the sort that got pushed up the rickety gangway with brass at the corners and a double-barreled name stenciled on the side. It was bloody heavy and very difficult to drag across the tarmac. His orders were to avoid the house, which was the quickest way, and the next shortest route had steps. There was nothing for it. Brute strength would win the day. Oh, for an abandoned shopping trolley. He didn't care what brand. Anything pushed into the bushes would do. There was nothing like that round here, though. It was too well maintained. Here was Mr. Name Redacted. What are you waiting for? Nothing. Just working out a plan of action. It weighs a ton. I was wondering whether... Bring it round the back. That had already been established. How wasn't yet as clear. His was not to reason why... His was to suffer permanent degradation of the lumbar region at the whim of some bossy old bastard. Well, if that was the way of it, then best to get it over and done with. Then he could return all the sooner to the enforced and welcome indolence of the long summer break. 
his parents mollified and the impression of a hard-working and dutiful son restored. Wasn't so bad. Once the slope down to the garden kicked in, which was something to be said for riverside places, you should set a fire and burn the lot. That was doable. The boy scout training proving useful again, despite what everyone said. It was not simply a charitable front for kiddie fiddlers and retired black shirts. It equipped a boy for life. That said, hadn't this, name redacted, heard of shredders? Presumably not. I have lighter fluid. Well, that was almost an insult. The use of accelerants, cheating. Where was the skill in that? If the old fellow wanted to go that route, why not do it himself? Anyone can pour lighter fluid into a box and light it. Thanks, where do you want it? Anywhere. Not on the lawn, though. Anywhere. Anywhere. Right. Matches? The old man patted himself all over and went into the house. Right. Anywhere. He dragged it over right into the middle of the grass by the bird bath, away from any overhanging branches and whatever. In his head, a scene played out from Apocalypse Now, the napalming of a jungle, trees aflame, helicopters swooping, Wagner. He prized the trunk open and... Letters. No wonder it was so heavy. Thousands of letters with ribbons and stamps. There were postcards, too. Not there, down by the compost heap. Not anywhere, then, for God's sake. The decrepit fucker couldn't make out eye contact. He was utterly useless. Down at the compost heap, name redacted, produced with a yellow hand, a rectangular tin of lighter fluid, which was also yellow, and then Cook's matches, the boxes of which were more yellow. I want to keep this trunk. Really? How's that going to work? Well, sir, I can't burn them one at a time, can I? Why not? Because there were fucking thousands of them. Perhaps you have an old metal dustbin or a barbecue? I don't have a barbecue. He didn't have a barbecue. So burn them one at a time. His back, like a bag of tennis balls, and his head just visible behind as he walked away, looked eminently kickable. Don't read them. This was delivered from inside, with old man muttering after. He wasn't to read them. He was prohibited from reading them. So now suddenly he wanted to read them. The interdiction provoked its own transgression. It defined it, enforced it. Now in his head was the scene played out not from Apocalypse Now, but from a tedious Wednesday morning lecture from his subsid course. A middle-aged man, bearded and beige, laconically indicating words in chalk, unreadable in his memory. Fuck it. Thousands. There would be N hours work where N is a large integer. Perhaps not if there was a system. Perhaps if he lit each letter from the flames of the last with no pause, no taking of breath. The first cook's match didn't catch on the safety striping, striking strip, but skidded across ineffectually, damply. He pressed the next harder and the thing flared. Yellow. All you so yellow. Charlotte Gilman Perkins. Yellow was the most popular color for psychiatric wards. Was that a coincidence? The eggshell blue Basildon Bond was as damp as the matchbox and cold and reluctant to burn, more reluctant than the matchwood at least. It curled and brittled slowly, flattening and twisting, and then surreptitiously burning his fucking fingertips white. He dropped it, and the thin line of fire crept along, irregularly jagged, like a scar or a coastline. He picked it up again by the landmass. Don't read was not, as it turned out, a problem. 
The handwriting was careful and regular, but in another language, more than one. Italian, French, German, fuck new, all at once. As if the heat broke down the paper's resistance or the pulp suddenly became willing to burn, the letter flared, racing red up to his wrist, and this time he dropped it right onto his jeans. Is that enough? <laughs> um, well, we've, we've hit our mark. It was supposed to be um, a bit earlier than that, so we could buy books and, uh, and have them signed, and thank you. But anyway, thank you very much for the LRB. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for the writers, the translators, the publishers. Um, thank you and good night. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.